Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, we are talking about one of the most famous orators from ancient Mediterranean history, Cicero. Now, join me to talk through the rise of Cicero in the first century BC. I was delighted to be joined by Professor Catherine Steele from the University of Glasgow. Catherine is a leading expert on Cicero on Roman oratory at this moment in ancient history. So without further ado, here's Catherine. Catherine, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, we are talking about Cicero. And Catherine, can we say, I mean, this is the rise of, can we say, one of the most remarkable orators, not just in ancient history, but in the whole of history? I think so. I mean, to say that is obviously to work within a particular Eurocentric view of history. But within that, I think that's right, partly because... What we know of his performance suggests that he was indeed an extraordinary orator. But more than that, I think, is the dominance he has within Roman literature as the orator. As you know, there are no other complete speeches by any orators from the late Republic because Cicero becomes this dominant and canonical form of the of the genre. And therefore, his are the speeches which are copied through antiquity, become school texts and therefore survive the process of transmission after the end of the Roman Empire. And it's that dominance of the textual traditions that mean that he then becomes such a key figure in the Western educational tradition. He becomes the model of Latin prose. He becomes the author that everybody has to read in school who is learning Latin. And so from that perspective, he then becomes hugely influential as a model of oratory. So it's not just his own achievements, but it's his dominance within the reception of classical literature that I think underscores that claim for his importance as an orator. Because it's very interesting, isn't it, Catherine, in how that Cicero, as we remember him as this this giant of Roman oratory at, at this time in ancient history, but... He's not the only great Roman orator at this time. It's just his works are the ones that have really survived and survived the best. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, even of his own generation, Caesar is supposed to have been an exceptional orator. Now, of course, Caesar was out of Rome for so much of his career that his opportunities to perform were much less extensive. 
but he was a very fine orator. People such as Caelius Rufus, Cicero's younger contemporary, were also known to be remarkable orators. We have only to read Cicero's history of oratory, Brutus, to get the sense of a very crowded landscape of orators, among which Cicero was, was one of the, the preeminent orators, but there were many of his contemporaries who were also very fine performers and very different performers. Now, the time period that we're talking about, let's dive into the background first of all. So this is the first century BC. And Catherine, at this time, for someone wanting to enter public life in Rome, the importance of communicating, of oratory, it's not essential, but it's become really, really helpful. Yes, that's right. Because of the the face-to-face nature of Roman politics, political power at Rome depends on election to public office. So how do you persuade the electorate to vote for you? I mean, interestingly, there isn't very much electoral oratory itself. I mean, candidates, interestingly, don't seem to have canvassed by speaking. But effectiveness as a public speaker is one of the ways in which you get known by the Roman people. And therefore, you have a reputation, a a visibility that means that they are likely to vote for you when election comes. So when the election comes, the the importance to be able to communicate at this time, but the law courts at this time as well, has that also helped influence the importance of oratory? Yes, I think so. Now, not every Roman politician spoke in the law courts. So there's a degree of specialisation involved. But the law courts as a venue for oratory have been important, certainly since the mid-2nd century BC, if not earlier. The reason that we often see a turning point in the mid-2nd century BC is that's the point at which the first standing courts are established, the so-called quaestiones. Prior to that, the people judged the most significant offences in trials at which speeches were delivered. But from 149, we have the quaestio system, and that system is is overhauled by Sulla in the, um, the late 80s BC. And following that, there's a lot of forensic activity around a range of offences that can be committed by politicians. So it's not just that the law courts are visible and the places where people can show their oratorical skills, but it's also a place in which aspirant politicians can build networks, particularly through defending politicians. Because the other thing about the Roman legal process that's important is that it involves advocacy. You can get somebody else to speak on your behalf. So that's very different from Athens. I mean, we've got a lot of forensic oratory from classical Athens, but those are speeches that are written for people to deliver. One of the things that's always kind of interesting when you're looking at Demosthenes or Lysias's forensic oratory is how do they craft the persona of the speaker? Because it's a speech written for somebody else to deliver. But when we have a Ciceronian forensic speech, that is Cicero speaking on behalf of somebody else. And that act of advocating somebody else, particularly if you're defending them, is itself a very important way of gathering favour and support and building the kinds of networks that can then be cashed out when it comes to building a political career. You mentioned there all those amazing things there with law courts and all that, and you mentioned Cicero and you also mentioned Greece there. So let's dive into the figure of Cicero now before going on to some of his cases in depth. Because Catherine, Cicero's background, his education when he's younger... Do those speakers further east in Greece and in the Hellenistic world, do they have a profound impact on him when he's growing up? I think so. But I think that is true of any Roman speaker, because oratory was one of the intellectual skills where Rome was very conscious of the opportunities to borrow from the Greek world, to develop skills by looking at Greek teaching 
and the importance of Greek as a language for rhetorical instruction and for Greek uh, texts to be used as instructional manuals for, for oratory that was going to be delivered in Latin. It's really striking. Um, and Cicero certainly is part of that world. There is, in fact, when he's in his teens, there are some interesting debates at Rome which are badly attested and it's not entirely clear what's going on, but part of the issue seems to be should rhetorical instruction even take place in Latin as opposed to Greek. And so Cicero's instruction does seem to have been in Greek, as, as many of his contemporaries would have studied in Greek. Cicero perhaps was, well, I mean, he, I think pretty clearly was very immersed in the intellectual worlds of both Rome and uh, Greek literature, but he also studied in the Greek East. In fact, after he delivered his first speeches in Rome, he went to the Eastern Mediterranean, called at Athens, but also spent time on Rhodes studying oratory. It's, a, it's an interesting moment in his career. Some people, based on some, some ancient interpretations, think that he went because he was afraid that one of his first speeches, the defence of Sextus Roscius, had offended Sulla. And so he's sort of leaving Rome because he'd made things a bit hot for himself. But that, I think, is not very likely, really. I mean, if you look at the speech, it's actually in many ways quite a pro-Sullan, or at least a pro-status quo speech. Difficult to see. It would really have caused him problems. And it may, in fact, have been as simple as the explanation he gives in Brutus, where he says that at the start of his career, his technique wasn't very good. And physically, it wasn't very good. He overstrained himself in terms of voice projection and was making himself ill. And he went to the Greek East in order to improve his technique, to, to learn how to be an orator who could be heard by large crowds, but in ways that didn't actually physically exhaust him. So he, spe he spends time in the 70, early 70s BC studying oratory before he comes back to Rome and stands for the first of the elected offices that will lead to membership of the Senate, and that's the quaestorship, which he holds in 75. So Cicero, he returns to Rome to apply for public office here. Mm -hmm. What's his next big case in the law court, shall we say? When does he next really come to prominence? I think that we have to say that 70 BC, where he prosecutes fairies. And that's, that's a big moment in his career. And it's interesting for a number of reasons, I think. It's interesting partly because it's a, it's a prosecution speech. Cicero is very, very reluctant throughout his career to prosecute. He only, in fact, is known to have done it one other time. And that's in the late 50s as, as part of the fallout from the death of Clodius and his unsuccessful defence of Milo and, and so on. So he does, he does engage in a prosecution then. But what from that, not. So the, very, the various case is really odd from that point of view. And he talks in some of his treatises later on in his career about the ethical problems of being a prosecutor. This is a difficult thing to do because you are, I mean, if you're successful, you may well end somebody's career. This is a very high stakes activity and it's a kind of brutal activity that is a bit difficult to reconcile with other aspects of being a member of the elite. So what's going on in 70? Well, the man he prosecutes is obviously Gaius Ferries and he's being prosecuted because of the things he's alleged to have done as pro-preacher, as governor of the province of Sicily. And Cicero very much presents the prosecution at times as though it's in fact a defence. It's very interesting the way that throughout those speeches he uses the language of defending victims and he presents himself as if he's defending the Sicilians against Veres. He kind of makes it clear that the Sicilians are objects of our pity and compassion, that they have been maltreated by Veres and that he is stepping up to protect them. He has a, a personal connection here. I mean, after his quaestorship, the province to which he himself is sent is Sicily. So that's just before Veres' governorship. 
So he can present that link that he already has with the Sicilians as, as one of the reasons why he's got involved. But he also presents Verres as a danger to the Roman state, not just because of what he did in Sicily, but because Cicero creates this story of an elaborate attempt by Verres to escape justice through his connections with members of the Roman elite. So we get this story that Cicero tells us about how Verres is trying to delay the trial into the following year, where the magistrates in, in office will be more sympathetic to him. And one of the contexts that may be going on in relation to the, the trial and Cicero's tactics, but also why he, he wanted to get involved, was there seems to have been the perception, at least, of quite a lot of corruption in the Roman courts in the later part of the 70s BC. This is probably to be connected with changes that Sulla introduced and the way those changes were playing out. The juries are entirely senatorial in the 70s BC, and that is provoking a lot of opposition, or at least so Cicero says. And again, he argues to the jury at the various trial that they have to convict Verres because it's their last chance to show they're not corrupt. And if they don't convict Verres, then legislation will be introduced to restrict their privileges, which in fact does happen. So I think Cicero, you could say that in the Verrines case, there's a certain amount of bandwagon jumping. That Cicero sees an opportunity here to capture something in the public mood and to make Verres a scapegoat. And the fact that it's taking place in the year that Pompey holds his first consulship may not be insignificant, because I think there's, there's reasonably good evidence that Pompey presents himself as a bit of a new broom for his own consulship in 70. In the autumn of 71, he gives a famous speech to the Roman people in which he makes clear that he will reverse some of the more unpopular aspects of the Sullen Res Publica as consul. Cicero had known Pompey since they were both young men. And I suspect he may have seen an opportunity here and he may have thought, if I prosecute Verres, who is very much a sullen figure, okay, I can align myself with Pompey, I can show myself to be part of this moderate, not scary, reform movement, but nonetheless part of this reform movement. And so that may have been a factor in the decision to prosecute Verres. One other thing I think is just possibly part of the picture here. We tend to think of Cicero as this great orator. And he was, of course. But if you actually look at his career in the 70s BC as a forensic orator, and assuming that it's reasonably well documented, which I think probably in terms of his performances it is, it's not taking off very fast. I mean, he's giving a number of, of civil law speeches about property and so on, not hugely exciting, not hugely high profile clients. I don't think he's had a senatorial client yet. I mean, I don't think he's had a client who's a member of the Senate before 70. And by this point, he's 36. He's held the priestship. He, he does go for the leadership, but he's looking forward to the next stage where actually the competition gets really tight. But if he's looking towards the priestship and then he even, goodness made the, the consulship, how is he going to start making himself look striking? And I think that may be part of this sense that he needs to make a splash. And of course, as a defence advocate, you can only get the cases you're asked to take on, but you can prosecute anybody. So that by prosecuting Mary's, there's a sense in which he's creating an opportunity for himself. High risk. If it doesn't work, he's got a very powerful enemy. There are all these difficulties about you don't want to be a habitual prosecutor and so on. But, but seizing this one opportunity, a man who's probably guilty, at least public opinion is, is quite willing to believe things about Verres, very much associated with Sulla. You've got this climate in which perhaps things are shifting slightly. Maybe this is a good moment to seize this opportunity and make something of it. And of course, again, if you look at the Verines, you can see, good heavens, Cicero did make something of that. He never disseminated a version of a speech or a trial, anything like the scale of the Verines.
Absolutely, Catherine. As you say, doing a prosecution, especially against this really high profile figure, it's very risky. But if it succeeds, he'll stand out a mile away in his own ambitions. Yes, high risk, high reward. But if it comes off, as it does, there we have Cicero making, making a picture himself. And one of the other nice things about the Verine case, of course, is that who was defending varies? Hortensius. And Hortensius is the man who has dominated Roman oratory for the past 20 years. I mean, it's very difficult to get a finger on why Hortensius was so, so great an orator. He doesn't seem to have written down his speeches, but he clearly was hugely competent, hugely influential as a performer. And this is Cicero and Hortensius going head to head. Not the first time they've clashed, but, but going head to head in the courts about a really high profile case. And it's interesting that when Cicero comes again to shape his own career, particularly in, in his treatise, The Brutus, that sense of being in dialogue with Hortensius and there being a moment at which he, he surpasses Hortensius is very apparent. Just before we dive into this epic clash between Hortensius and Cicero in the law courts, just so we can really picture the scene, Catherine, because we, we might think of law courts today, obviously very secluded, uh, in inside, but in ancient Rome, and for instance, with this prosecution, it was a very different environment. It was indeed. We're in the open air, for starters. There's no restriction on who can hang around listening and no obligation to stay. So you can drift over, have a listen, go away if they're getting bored. One of the things that could throw an orator was losing his crowd, losing his audience. So this so-called corona, the crown, I mean, there's a term to describe the people who are listening to a forensic speech, but who aren't jurors or court attendants or anything like that. You've got the jury there. You've got a presiding magistrate, but he's not really a judge. He doesn't have a judicial function. He's just kind of administering, presiding over the events. And sometimes, at least, it seems as if it can be quite slack. I think there's a speech in which Cicero complains that one juror has basically wandered off during a trial because he had something else to do somewhere else. So in some senses, it seems quite a relaxed environment, quite a chaotic or at least an uncontrolled environment, but a place at which orators could perform. And if they were performing well, everybody in the forum would see because they'd see the crowd listening to them. And we also seem to be in a world in which different trials could be going on simultaneously. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Right. So we get to this trial, this clash between Hortensius and Cicero and this prosecution. Cicero, it's it's a big risk, but he knows if he can pull it off, this could be huge for his career. Catherine, what are his tactics? Extraordinary levels of detail, effectively. He overwhelms the jury with evidence. In fact, he, he says that he does something quite unusual, which is rather than have a long opening speech, he plunges straight into the witness testimony. Now, he says he does this because he's worried about delays. Okay, this, is, this is part of countering Barry's plot to, to postpone things, pushing the trial into the end of the year where there are lots of religious festivals which get in the way of days on which courts can sit. So Cicero kind of presents himself as in a desperate hurry as the only way to stop Barry's plot. But he does seem to have gathered many, many, many witnesses to various activity and that he just overwhelms the jury with this material. I mean, it's a bit difficult to unpack his techniques because, of course, the relationship between the speeches that we have relating to this trial and exactly what happened is a bit difficult to determine. Now, all extortion trials at Rome had a second hearing. There's a kind of compulsory adjournment. So the fact that we've got the first hearing and the second hearing isn't in itself unusual. But, of course, there is this allegedly gave up after the first hearing and goes into exile at that point. So the general view is that the five speeches of the so-called second hearing of the Verlines, which is the enormous bit, if you, if you kind of look at a text, that those were never actually delivered, right? that Verlines had already gone, and by going, that's taken as a, an acknowledgement of guilt. And if so, then we have this very interesting point at which the Surah chooses nonetheless to publish all this material, to, to have copies of it disseminated. Why? Well, you know, partly it's about recording his, his extraordinary achievement. Partly it's, I think, about demonstrating that Verres was guilty, okay, that this isn't an example of an innocent man being hounded out of Rome. It's a guilty man facing just penalty. And I think partly it's about cementing his reputation, because this was a great victory and he wants people to know about it. And in terms of the speech's own effectiveness, they do, they do overwhelm by detail. Um, they are comprehensive. They take the whole of Verri's career. It's often said, quite rightly, that Roman law has less of an anxiety about relevance. 
So there doesn't seem to be a problem that in, in the course of explaining that Verres is guilty of extortion in Sicily, he talks about the whole of Verres' career, and that allows him to bring up all sorts of discreditable things about Verres as a young man, as um, an adherent of Sulla, as himself a, a junior officer in um, with other Roman provincial governors. And then we work through Verres in Sicily by topic, so there's a whole speech on corn, there's a speech on the administration of law, then we get the speech about the theft of artworks, and then we have the speech which culminates in some grotesque judicial abuses, including the execution of men who claim to be Roman citizens. So there's a, there's a rising emotional crescendo. And at the statues um, speech, the artwork speech, is important because a lot of those, those objects were religious dedications. So it's, it's, this is a religious problem, not just a problem about theft. And the fact that Cicero points out these things, these real well, terrible deeds that, that Verres has done in the eyes of those Romans, perhaps the jurors and those who are watching the trial, does this really emphasise that Cicero, he was highlighting these to try and rouse up the like, perhaps anger, the emotion of the crowd to get the crowd behind him in this case? Yes, I think so. And the sense that you're, that the jury is likely to be affected by the reactions of the wider crowd is, I think, a, a definitely an element in, in Roman judicial practice. And there's no sense that there's anything improper about that or that the jurors need to be kept from seeing what public opinion was. And I think the orchestration of emotion is, is a key factor in, in what's going on in the Verines. And at times, these are extraordinarily emotional speeches. We are supposed to feel the fear and the terror and um, pity. But I think it, there's also a, a kind of a, a real problem for Cicero in terms of his tactics, because Verres was governor of Sicily at the end of the 70s BC. Now, this is the point at which the Spartacus slave revolt is taking place in southern Italy. That was a, a startling and rather horrifying episode for Rome, and it takes a surprisingly long time for Rome to regain control of the situation. I mean, Roman armies are defeated by Spartacus's forces. So I think one of the cases that could be made on Mary's behalf was he kept Sicily safe. Okay, he prevented the slave revolt from spreading over to Sicily, and he you know, protected it um, militarily. And... I think we can see that countering that argument, you know, that whatever Verres has done, he, he was a, a competent commander, is quite important in the way that Cicero shakes part of the speeches, in which he's, he's actually trying to show us that, that Verres wasn't a competent commander. He relied on other people, he made mistakes, he, he was corrupt, he let prisoners go, and so on and so forth. But that's an interesting point, I think, the argument that, that could have been made, and we have to assume that Hortensius was planning to make that Verres was a competent governor at a time of crisis. It is therefore very interesting, isn't it, Catherine, that rather than this idea that Verres, he had all this, this negative stuff surrounding him that would have just hurt his case and that Cicero pounced on it, you make the, the very great point there that actually you have these other events happening at that time and that Hortensius perhaps could have easily won his argument if he'd have put his his own uh, thoughts across, these own ideas across, with perhaps more emotion to the crowd. I guess further, it further emphasises, doesn't it, how, once again, how big a risk take this was by Cicero because of how easily it could have backfired, but he does pull it off. He does pull it off, yes. I, mean, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, the other thing is, I mean, Cicero's presentation of Verres 
is so effective that Verys is a byword for a corrupt, monstrous governor. But if you look at other speeches that Cicero gives as defence advocate on the same charge, you can see him explaining away things that don't look a million miles from what Verys is supposed to have done. I mean, he defends Fonteus in 69. Unfortunately, the speech is, um, is fragmentary on these charges. But you look, at, you look at it and you think, well, hang on. <laughs> um, he's sort of explaining away on the basis of, you know, provincials lie. You can't believe anything they say in court. You know, they've sold these things. They'll, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, by this point, the provincial government has been um, something that the Roman courts, the Quaestiones, have been looking at for, what, um, 80 years there are clearly standard ways in which you defend a governor, um, particularly by attacking the witness testimony, um, which, of course, very often, of course, almost almost always is not going to be from Roman citizens. That's the nature of the offence. And Cicero was, was effective at doing that when he had to. If he, I mean, he could defend men on these charges, and he did. So, again, that underscores the sense, I think, that it could have gone the other way. And the reason we don't necessarily ask how innocent was Verres is precisely because Cicero's oratory is so effective. It doesn't really leave open the possibility that he might be innocent. Absolutely. I mean, I must admit, I hadn't really thought of that point at all until you mentioned like the whole context of, of it all. And I guess it must be testament to the power of, of Cicero's prosecution in that case. Because, I mean, Catherine, when, when we look at this prosecution and its success, I mean, in regards to Cicero's career and his rise, how significant really is this? I think it must be quite significant. I mean, it's a, it's a bit difficult to tell, partly because we don't have a huge amount of evidence about the early stages of Cicero's career. I mean, we don't start getting his letters really until the late 60s, for example. But I think it, I think it probably did play um, something of a part in making him known and paving the way for his election to the praetorship. The election to the consulship, I suspect, is by that point varies his old history, and it's it's shaped by other factors. Who was standing? Who who else was standing for election that year? Possibly Cicero's relationship with Pompey. I mean, he's certainly done as much as he can with the relationship with Pompey. Remember that speech he gives as praetor in sixty six, in which he argues for the special command that Pompey gets. So I, I suspect when we come to think about how did he get elected for the consul, we're, we're, we're looking at a set of factors in 63 that probably weren't directly influenced by 70 um, by the trial of Verres. But I suspect it did have a, um, a role to play in steering Cicero towards success in the Praetorian elections. Because following the Verres prosecution, I mean, I mean, Catherine, what is the next big step for Cicero? Is it these elections or is there another case before that? I think... His forensic career does seem to pick up after the variants, um, possibly related. And so he gets his first senatorial defendant and there are speeches, some of which survive from the 60s, that you know, demonstrate his skills and so on. I think, though, the the next stage, I mean, he, he holds the edileship and then I think probably the next stage is the priestship in 66. And during that, the consolidation of the relationship with Pompey by the delivery of the De Imperio Gnide Pompeii speech which really cements Cicero as, as a Pompeian supporter, but also, I think, importantly, as somebody who is making Pompey's ambitions acceptable. I mean, that, that speech is, is such a carefully balanced argument for Pompey to have this extraordinary command, but also that it is safe to do so, that it's in line with Roman practice, that it may be an innovation, but it is a safe and controllable innovation, and opposition to it, although well-intentioned, is nonetheless misplaced. 
and I think we can see Cicero doing the, what he, he tries to do really throughout his political career with greater or less sense, which, sense, which is to build consensus, concordia ordinum, to, to come up with a political programme that can attract enough people that it can marginalise any opponents. And we can see that in Cicero as a politician, the sense that there is never legitimate opposition because what Cicero is pushing forward should attract the support of all decent people. And because of that, he can then get moved to this very exclusionary rhetoric against his opponents. You mentioned there one of those other great giants of this period in late Roman Republican history, Pompey. Mm. This might be a very obvious question, but Pompey, he must see Cicero's rise. He must see Cicero's ability as an orator and think, as you say, make him an ally, get him on side to help forward his own ambitions. Yes. I mean, we know that Pompey and Cicero met as very young men. Um, Cicero, who is a, um, during the Social War, served in, in the army of Pompey's father. And so they presumably met there and they're more or less the same age. And I think, I mean, I think, yes, we can certainly look at Cicero's own career and see him very carefully watching what Pompey is doing and allying himself with Pompey's programme for his own benefit. How far Pompey is encouraging him, I think it's a bit more difficult to tell. When Pompey is on the point of returning to Rome after his successful campaign, first against the pirates and then against Mithridates, Cicero writes to him and expresses the hope that he can be Lilius to Pompey's Scipio. So he refers back to the famous friendship between Scipio and Lilius in the 2nd century BC, in which Lilius is the wise advisor and Scipio is the great military commander. And so he expresses the hope that he might fulfil a similar role for Pompey. Um, Pompey's first overt appeal to Cicero, I think, is probably that moment at the end of 60 BC where he and Caesar ask Cicero to join their own alliance this informal um, alliance that leads to Caesar's election as consul. They, they ask Cicero whether he's prepared to help them, and Cicero at that point says no, because he sees in Caesar too much of a threat to the res publica and to its traditions. I mean, the relationship within the two men is, is, is very interesting, but, but at moments of crisis, I mean, it's certainly not the case that Pompey comes through for Cicero, or indeed that Cicero comes through for Pompey. I mean, Cicero rejects that overture at the end of 60, and when in 58, Clodius as tribune, starts this campaign to try and drive um, Cicero into exile and to, to hold him responsible for the execution of Roman citizens at trial back in 63. Pompey very, very, very obviously and openly does not support Cicero. And that is a breach that, that you know, deeply wounded Cicero and, and takes time to, to, to mend, clearly at a level of personal feeling, even though after Cicero's return, he is very loyal to Pompey at all points throughout the 50s and, of course, ends up fighting on the Pompeian side during the Civil War. Absolutely. I mean, and we've, we've talked then about, you mentioned Caesar, you mentioned Pompey there. Just before we wrap up talking about the rise of Cicero and all that, there's, there's one other figure I'd, I would like to talk about just for a little bit. I think it'd be worthy of a podcast on its own, to be honest. But that's one of Cicero's standout enemies uh, from what, what I've read. Catiline. Uh, Catherine, who is Catiline? Well, Lucius Sergius Catalina. He... Catalina. Okay. Catalina, yeah, no. <laughs> Catiline is absolutely the anglicisation of his name, yeah. He's another Roman politician. He's much grander than, than Cicero or even Pompey because Catiline is a patrician. So he's one of the, by this point in the Roman Republic, very small number of families who can trace their lineage back to the pre-Republican period. 
And before Augustus, there's no mechanism for making new patricians. And it's a, a status that descends through the male line. So they, they gradually dwindle and die out. Um, but Catiline is still around and Caesar's a patrician too. I mean, it's often said to be entirely irrelevant by this point in the Republic. And it's true that the, the long so-called struggle of the orders has led to plebeian and patrician equality in terms of access to office and so on. That, that's all been settled for centuries at this point. But the patrician status does, does have a certain cachet, I think, in terms of descent and a small number of religious elements too. But, but Catiline's family haven't been, um, haven't been politically distinguished or active or prominent for ooh, over 100 years at this point. He's a decayed aristocrat, heavily in debt, follows Sulla, and that's where he seems to get his break probably benefited financially from the prescriptions and embarks on a public career. But it doesn't, it just doesn't go terribly well for him. I mean, he reaches the praetorship and then he governs Africa, but he's faced with prosecution on his return. He's heavily in debt and he just doesn't quite seem to be able to get the support that he needs to be elected. He's just too dangerous. So he's, he's one of the people, one of the other serious candidates for the consulship in 63. We know a bit about the campaign. I mean, very early on, Cicero, because the elections for 62 were held in the summer of 64 and campaigning seems to start the year before. So as early as 65, Cicero is surveying the field and he names seven people at that point. I think six plus himself as potential candidates. Most of them are non entities, but the three who emerge as likely to be successful are Cicero himself, a man called Gaius Antonius, who is the uncle of Mark Antony, but obviously doesn't know that yet, and Catiline. And it's a three-way race. And what seems to happen is that Catiline just spooks the horses. He's just too dangerous, too rackety a figure. And Cicero wins comfortably and Antonius squeaks in ahead of Catiline. And of course, if Antonius hadn't, then I suspect the Catilinarian conspiracy wouldn't have happened. Cicero and Catiline would have been consuls in 63 and Catiline would have gone off and misgoverned the province and, and it would all have settled down. But Catiline isn't elected. And the following year, he stands again. And it's in the course of that campaign that he starts um, making some of the really frightening policy remarks about debt relief and about radical um, social and political reform. Um, and he also, he loses again. And it's in the autumn of that year, following his second defeat for the consulship, that he seems to have turned to some form of armed uprising. And in the autumn of that year, goes off to join forces in Etruria and um, is defeated in battle in 62. And you know, it's possible to look at him and think, well, what on earth did he think he was going to do? But of course, Sulla had led an armed uprising, which we don't think of as an armed uprising, because it worked and he became dictator, re-established the race publica. And there's another example, actually, um, immediately after Sulla, a man called Emilius Lepidus, who seems to have sought um, by armed uprising to seize or consolidate power. So, so maybe Catiline's wasn't quite such a desperate or, or pointless venture as it can sometimes seem. But it was clearly a very alarming moment. And what made it more alarming was the revelation that he and his fellow conspirators had been in negotiations with a Gaulish tribe to try and orchestrate simultaneous uprisings. And it's that revelation, in fact, which leads to the debates in the Senate in early December 63 and the Senate's authorisation of Cicero to oversee the execution of five of the conspirators. I mean, so this seems like another, like, Similar to Veres in the prosecution, I mean, this is, this is big news. I mean, with Veres, it's a prosecution. You're attacking someone with this conspiracy. As you say right there, Cicero, if he wins, and I'm presuming he does win, this is the execution of people. Yes, it's an extraordinary moment. He's operating within um, or under the uh, authorization of uh, the so-called Senatus Consultum Ultimum, 
which is an emergency measure. And it's been passed beforehand at moments of crisis. And following it, consuls have taken decisive military action to put down internal dissension. So it's used after, um, it's used against Gaius Gracchus and it is used at various other points. And you know, Roman politics in the last century is, is violent, people die. So to that extent, you know, there's an there's a emerging tradition of, of this kind of military repression of political crisis. But it remains very much a grey area in terms of its legality. Um, and that is why Cicero faces a challenge from Codius a few years later, because you know, the Senate may have voted for the execution, but that didn't make it legal. So it's another very high-risk moment. What is worth noting, however, is that the immediate reaction at Rome was one of huge relief. Okay, this is the moment at which Cicero is acclaimed as pater patriae, father of the fatherland, a thanksgiving is voted for him. So that sense of immediate relief that Cicero is a, is a saviour figure who has saved the race publica from this, this very real threat is strong in 63, and then there is a reaction against it. And how far that is a reaction or how far is it that different people's voices are being heard is an interesting question. But nonetheless, there is a swing of public opinion against him, which means that Clodius can be elected as tribune and then can oversee Cicero's exile. Goodness. When you think of it, then, it's quite a jump from Passa Patriae to, to exile in, in, a, in a matter of years. I yeah. guess it really emphasises how things can turn on a dime in late Republican Roman political circles very quickly. Yes, yes. Um, not that Clodius's ascendancy lasts forever. I mean, Cicero does manage to get back from exile, which is in itself fairly unusual among Roman politicians, though he never manages to regain anything like that transcendent moment of 63, those glorious knowns, as he describes it, the, the knowns being the day of the month on which the, the key debate was held. Ah, I mean, that, that, that's really extraordinary. Uh, and Catherine, j- just to finish it off, and you mentioned it quite rightly at the start, as I mentioned in the introduction, we think of him as one of the greatest orators in history. But of course, that is looking at it in like the ancient Mediterranean viewpoints. I mean, but, but even when we look at it as a world viewpoint, when we consider other figures across the ancient world and in world history, I mean, when we're looking at the art of persuasion and all that, you've got to give some credit to Cicero. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, he's, he's a fantastic writer. I mean, immersing yourself in, in his oratory is a, is, a, is a wonderful experience because he just is a sublime uh, user of the genre. It, it is wonderful stuff, even though one can often despair at his politics um, or indeed despair at the... Um, uh, well, Mandassi is going a little too strong, but he's, a very good, he's very good at making the best possible case out of the materials to hand. As I think Demosthenes said before, all that matters with the speech is delivery, delivery, delivery. Yes. And Cicero got that. Catherine, that was a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was fun to talk to you about these things. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.